Part six of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. From the Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines by Mary Cowden Clark. Part six. The quiet chess mornings, the brilliant social evenings enjoyed with Thyra, made Ophelia's time speed pleasantly away, while she could not but observe that at all seasons, at all hours, Eric of Kronstein was ever the favourite guest of her friend. When others were excluded, he was admitted. Before others arrived, he was already there, and after others had retired, he lingered and always his advent and his stay were welcome. By his adroit management this was not markedly apparent to the world, but to one in such close companionship as Ophelia it could not escape notice. Once, it was an evening when there was no assemblage of friends, the young ladies were deep in the absorbing interest of Thyra's favourite game, while the Lord of Kronstein stood by as was his frequent wont, leaning over the back of her chair, watching the lesson she gave, suggesting the best moves on either side, and aiding the fair teacher with his superior knowledge. It grew late, and the game was not yet ended. Their excitement strengthened with every moment, for in the interest of the trial of skill, Kronstein had insensibly come to prompt Ophelia's moves exclusively, so that, in fact, Thyra and he were now playing against each other. Her cheeks were heated, her eyes sparkled, as a chess-player's will when the antagonism is at its height. At this moment the Lady Ophelia's coach, with Reynaldo, her father's confidential servant, and Gouda, her own woman, to attend her home, were announced as having arrived. "'Can it be so late? I had no thought of the hour. My lord, however unwillingly, you must be inhospitably bidden good-night. We must play out the game to-morrow,' said Thyra. We cannot leave it unfinished. Sleep would be impossible with the fate of that game undecided," exclaimed Eric impetuously. The Lady Ophelia will give orders that the equipage shall wait. My mother especially bade me return without delay, when she should send for me this evening," said Ophelia. It is my father's intention to take me with him to the palace to-morrow, to present me to their majesties and he desired that I would be with him to-night, ere he retired to rest, that he might speak some words of counsel he had to impress upon me. I may not tarry. Good-night, Thyra. Good-night, my lord." Thyra, in returning her leave-taking, evidently expected that the lord of Kronstein would retire at the same time, but he, declaring that the game of chess must be played out, in order to let Ophelia know its decision on the morrow, threw himself into the chair she had just quitted, showing that he was resolved to stay. Thyra, in pretty, blushing confusion, partly eagerness and pleasure, partly hesitation, submitted to his arrangement, and reseated herself at the chess-table, bidding her friend be sure to let her see her immediately on her return from her first court visit. In one of the large apartments of the palace on the following day sat a lady, surrounded by her attendant ladies, working at a tapestry frame. In a deep embayed window at some distance from her stood a man, leaning just within the recess, regarding her earnestly from beneath his bent brows and drooping lids. 
Not a bend of her handsome head, not an inclination of that polished throat, not a sweeping line of those white falling shoulders, not a curve of those voluptuously rounded arms, or a single movement of her ample but finely moulded figure, as it inclined over her work, escaped the eye so greedily noting every particular of her luxuriant beauty. Sensual admiration lurked in the looks with which he stealthily devoured her person, while all the while his attention was apparently devoted to feeding and playing with a hawk, which sat upon an ornamented perch, in the recessed window where he leaned. The man was Claudius, the king's brother. The lady was Queen Gertrude. The weather had been unusually warm. The soft afternoon air crept in by the open windows, and through the apartment there reigned the silence that grows with a sense of enjoyment and refreshment. It had for some time been preserved unbroken, save by the drawing through of the tapestry stitches, and the occasional restlessness of the hawk, pecking and biting at the teasing finger, when one of the attendant ladies exclaimed, "'His Majesty the King, madam!' Gertrude rose to receive her royal husband. He came to tell her of letters that had arrived from Wittenberg, bringing news of fresh academic honours attained by their son Hamlet one from himself, containing loving and duteous greetings to his parents, with tidings of his health and welfare, and other dispatches from the royal forces engaged in northern warfare, which had terminated in conquest to Denmark. The king concluded by saying that so much happy intelligence arriving on one day, deserved marking by some token of remembrance, and that he had brought one in the shape of a gemmed bracelet which he prayed her to wear as the gift, not only of a proud and happy father, and of a rejoicing monarch, but as that of a loving husband. As the king fondly leant over the beautiful arm presented to him, that he might clasp the jewel upon it, a sharp inward groan burst from the lips of Claudius. "'My brother!' exclaimed the king. "'I did not perceive your presence. Are you not well, my Claudius?' he added, approaching the recess where he leaned. That cry you could not suppress, your change of colour. Your face is pale, man, you are in pain. I have more than once noted that ashy hue steal upon your face. Tell me, tell your brother what you ail." "'An old wound, a hurt, tis nothing,' he answered, looking down. "'Or if—and he turned to the king, with a ghastly attempt to smile off his embarrassment—'tis but what reminds me that I have been a soldier, and long for an occasion to efface the old rankle with a few new scratches." "'It has scarred over, ere properly healed. It must be looked to,' said the king. "'It will never heal,' the other muttered bitterly, writhing as he withdrew from the hand laid in brotherly kindness on his shoulder. "'Our own leech shall examine it,' the king said in his gentle but earnest manner. "'You must not thus neglect health most dear to us.' "'Your grace shall pardon me. No leechcraft may avail. Tis beyond the physician's skill. I have learned to think it cannot be relieved. I will school myself to be more patient, more silent, endurance. You shall hear no more such weak betrayals." "'Sweet Gertrude, come hither. Use you your womanly persuasion, with this refractory brother of ours, to have his hurt examined. I will not believe it beyond cure." As the Queen advanced in obedience to her royal husband's bidding, and approached the spot where they stood, the King took her hand, and placing it on his brother's arm, said, "'I expect no less from the gentle power of my Gertrude's words, which as her loving husband I am free to confess,' he said, as he regarded her with an affectionate smile, "'than that I shall find on my return they have won our brother to our wish. The summer afternoon woos me forth to walk a while in mine orchard. 
Meantime prosper you in your suit, my queen." He left them thus standing beside each other, Gertrude's hand where he had placed it on his brother's arm. But when the king had left the apartment, she withdrew her hand and retired a pace or two from her close vicinity to Claudius. He breathed hard, and there was almost a fierceness in the tone with which he uttered the words, "'He bade you sue me, madam. Your suit, your will, what have you to urge? Let me hear you plead. You plead to me. But come, what is't?' "'Your wound, my lord. Consent that it shall be looked to. There might be relief.' He turned abruptly and looked at her as he said, "'You would have it relieved, cured?' "'Assuredly, my good lord, our leech is renowned in skill. He will, I doubt not—' Again he interrupted her. "'I speak not of the leech. But this old wound of mine, this deep-seated, scorching pain here, this corroding torture ever gnawing in and in, till vitality itself is the prey, would you have it relieved, cured, if relief and cure were in your own gift?' He dropped his voice to a whisper as he uttered the last few words, though the whole conversation had taken place in a low tone, which could not reach the spot where the attendant ladies sat, round the tapestry frame at the farther end of the room. Gertrude said, in a manner as natural and unconcerned as she could make it, "'Can you doubt it, my lord?' Willful misunderstanding sometimes betrays deepest consciousness. Claudius felt this as he looked at the varying cheek which belied the assumed composure of manner and saw that she knew his full meaning. "'Then pity me. This wound is probed to the quick. Its festering smart is tented past concealment of the anguish I endure, when he makes me the witness of his licensed endearments,' he hurried on, hissing serpent-like, his torrent of scarce suppressed passionate words. "'Can I calmly see him fondle that arm which I so many times have thirsted to press to these throbbing lips? A loving husband, forsooth! Why, his is a tame affection which can leave a wife to go sleep in the shade of a cool orchard, while mine is a burning passion that consumes me. Ardour such as mine befits a loving husband, not the puling caresses of that dotard." "'My lord, remember you of whom you speak, of your brother, your king, my husband!' "'Ay, madam, your husband, your loving husband!' he ground his teeth, muttering a curse. The very hem of your garment stirs me to more adoring warmth than he is capable of feeling, from the possession of all that he hath in right of loving husbandship," he presumed to add, as he clenched within his hand the end of a light drapery which formed part of her attire. "'You presume on my forbearance, my lord,' exclaimed the Queen. "'You cannot believe that I will listen longer to such rash speech.' She would have withdrawn from the recessed window but perceiving that a portion of her robe was within his grasp, she feared lest the movement might attract the attention of her ladies to this circumstance, and so betray to them what was passing. A veriest trifle such as this will suffice to sway the conduct of a weak-souled woman. At this moment an attendant entered to announce that the Lord Polonius and his daughter, the Lady Ophelia, craved audience of Her Majesty. "'Conduct them to the presence-chamber,' said the Queen. "'I will receive them there.' The edge of robing was still detained for an instant, then she felt it suddenly released and she was free to go. She moved away from the side of Claudius, without suffering her eyes to look towards him, and attended by her ladies, she left the apartment. As she proceeded along a gallery of the palace on her way to the state-chamber, one of her train of ladies exclaimed, lifting the end of the embroidered drapery which floated from the Queen's shoulders, See here, madam, some treacherous doorway hath torn away a fragment from your Majesty's attire. The piece is fairly wrenched out. 
Alack! the beauty of the robe is marred. Get other tires ready. I will exchange these anon when my lord Polonius shall have taken leave," said Queen Gertrude. It must needs have been some unheeded violence of a closing door, or other like accident. Tis no matter. A passing sweet temper hath her majesty, to regard the wreck of such embroidery as that without so much as a fretful word," thought the lady-in-waiting. "'And so you found our queen no less gracious than I had painted her to you,' said Thyra to Ophelia, when next the two friends sat together to discuss the grand event of court presentation. She was indeed all that a young creature could desire of considerate and encouraging. She condescended to make it her express desire that my father would bring me frequently to the palace in future. And while thou hast been basking in the sunshine of royal smiles and court favour, poor I have been yawning in the vapid atmosphere of foppery and folly, of coxcombry and pretension. Ah, I can tell, then, who hath been thy guest this morning, Thyra. Young Osric of Stoltzburg was not. He hath never thy good word, I know. Doth he deserve one? Is he not an insufferable froth, an intolerable bubble of emptiness? He thinks to play the accomplished gentleman by affecting modish phraseology, and adopting fashionable whims of speech. See how he minces his mother-tongue, in his mispronouncings. Let me arrange your layship's men for you, the knots, bashops, pones, and so. You shall take none other than the red, a blushing foil to your layship's fingers. Your layship advances your king's pone. Tis well, the forward varlet suffers capture in a trice for his presumption." "'In a trace, in a trace!' interrupted Ophelia, laughing at her friend's imitation of the young lordling's manner. "'True, in a trace for his presumption!' This same game of chess your la'ship favours, with so much of your la'ship's good larking, is exceeding dainty sport, of ingenious device, very subject to contrivance, very suggestive to skill, a most pleasing pastime, and a very exacting encounter. But your la'ship is playing oddly. Have a care, twill be a drone game." And thus was my morning droned away, with his foolish buzzing and wasp-like impertinence. Nay, he is but a butterfly, tis thou who art waspish, Thyra, to be vexed with so harmless an insect. He does but flutter to and fro, displaying his gay-painted coat, vainly and vain, but leaving no venom, inflicting no sting. But I tell thee, Ophelia, there is sting in his presence for me. My father hath, I know, set his heart on bringing about a match between this silly fly and myself. Now, though I do not believe that young Osric hath one thought of the kind for all his hoverings round me, yet I fear lest an inkling of my father's wish should generate that which his own brain could scarce originate—an idea, and that idea the one of wooing me to be his wife. Thou dost not desire to be a wife, Thyra?" I say not that, said Thyra, blushing, but I desire not to be Osric's wife. I will tell thee honestly, dear girl. There is a man whose wife I could wish to be, whose wife I hope to be, a man whom I love and who loves me, a man whom it is an honour to love, and whose love it is a pride to have won. But this man cannot ask me to become his wife until the redemption of his patrimony from mortgage shall give him a right to claim me openly of my father. And meantime you cannot wonder that I should wish to keep all suitors at a distance, who might win his consent, before my lover himself dare come forward to seek it and this lover is. No other than Eric of Kronstein. 
You surely must have guessed our attachment, you who have seen us so much together, dear friend." You forget that I have inexperienced eyes. That I am, as you call me yourself, dear Thyra, quite a novice in such matters," said the smiling Ophelia. You are innocent simplicity itself, sweet friend, as a girl of your years should be. Still I thought you must have seen how it was with Eric and myself. We have exchanged hearts. We are plighted to each other by the most solemn vows. He has more than once told me he looks upon me as his affianced bride, his wedded wife. I regard him as my husband, and feel that no power on earth should make me give myself to any other than Eric of Kronstein. He tells me that less than half a year will see him reinstated in full possession of his estates, and that then he can ask me of my father with good hope of success. Until that period, therefore, tis of the utmost importance our secret should not transpire. But I could not have felt true to the confidence I have professed in my friend Ophelia had it longer been withheld from her. The young girls embraced lovingly and heartily, as Thyra received the assurance that her secret should be faithfully preserved. Some months had elapsed since the last conversation. One evening, as the friends sat together, the hours grew, and with them the impatience of Thyra. She was expecting Lord Eric, who had promised to come, but still the time for his appearance went by, and he came not. His visits now were generally at a late hour, but night drew on, and yet he came not. Ophelia's attendant arrived with the coach to fetch her home and she left her friend pacing to and fro in the grounds by starlight, unwilling to abandon the hope of his coming even then. But as Ophelia reached the garden gate, and was about to step into her coach, she perceived Trasco, Lord Eric's servant. He entered the grounds, and she could see him deliver a letter to her friend, who, placing it in her bosom, hurried back to the house. Next morning, at an early hour, Polonius entered the apartment where his wife and daughter were, and by the ostentatious perturbation of his manner, evidently desired that they should ask what was the matter, the Lady Udra dutifully did so. He told her that he had that moment received intelligence of a circumstance which had occasioned great consternation in certain quarters. It was reported that Lord Eric of Kronstein, whose affairs were long suspected to be in an embarrassed state, was discovered to be utterly ruined that he had accumulated debts of large amount, that he had gambled away his patrimonial estate, that he was not worth a farthing, and that in order to escape from the crowd of demands which pressed upon him, he had, last night, under favour of darkness, embarked in a vessel bound for the archipelago. His creditors were outrageous, and Polonius added that he had reason to believe many gentlemen of high rank were among the most furious against him, on account of the numerous debts of honour which were thus left uncancelled. I confess I cannot feel much concern for them. They are probably for the most part little better than himself, gamblers and spendthrifts," said Udra. "'My dear, your virtue makes you hard upon fashionable follies,' said her husband. "'Conscious of our own integrity, we should be lenient to others more exposed to temptation. You can scarcely judge of those which beset young noblemen of spirit, and with means at their own disposal." But their spirit sometimes leads them to use means not at their own disposal. This Lord Eric of Kronstein, which he staked at the gaming-table sums that were not in his rightful possession, was guilty of more than folly. He acted basely, unjustly. Besides, if my memory serve, I have heard this same Lord of Kronstein accused of even worse vices than gambling. It is whispered that he is a libertine, a practised seducer." 
My good lady, how often must I caution you against giving credit to whispers, and hearsay, when they affect the character of those in high station? It is the vice of the envious to slander those with whom they cannot aspire to be equal. Besides, you are too strict, too austere in your judgment of such matters. These are scarcely more than pardonable errors, faults and follies to be expected in a handsome young fellow of his rank and age." As I have understood, this Kronstein is not so very young. He has reached years that ought to be of discretion very long since." "'Aye, well, it may be so. I know not of my own personal knowledge. But I must not tarry here. I must away to a privy council meeting that sits this morning. His Majesty laid his gracious commands on me to let him have, without fail, the help of this poor brain of mine. He is pleased to think it of some little avail in weighty questions that concern the State. Well, well, it may be so. It may be so." Away hurried the courtier, and the silence that ensued after his departure was first broken by Ophelia's asking her mother, "'What did you mean by calling Lord Eric of Kronstein a libertine, a seducer? I never heard the words.' The Lady Udra looked at her daughter with a tender earnestness. The better for mine innocent child that she has never heard them, never known their meaning. Better still could she have remained in ignorance evermore of their evil import. But my Ophelia will soon be a woman. She will mix with the world. She will encounter the ill as well as the good that exists there. She will find that men's natures are compounded of vice as of virtue, that they are capable of sinful and harmful deeds as well as highest and most meritorious actions that they oft-times work mischief instead of benefit, woe instead of weal, and that guile frequently lurks beneath the most specious seeming. To guard her against such sinister assailants, tis needful she should know the nature of her danger, a danger most imminent in the sphere to which she is destined, a court. Gradually then, and very heedfully, did this tender mother lift the veil from her young daughter's mind. She told her how the selfishness of man, frequently under the pretense of love for his victim, sacrifices her innocence, blasts her good name, betrays her to shame and misery, and then leaves her to ruin, to utter perdition. Disgrace, pollution, wreck of fair honour, peril of body and soul follow in the track of such a villain's footsteps, wherever his fatal admiration chances to light," said Udra vehemently. And such deeds are called fashionable follies, and pardonable errors of youth. The world is charitable in the allowances it makes for the worker of all this evil, though severely tyrannous to the injured party. But let the multitude be tolerant as it will to the titled libertine. I, for my part, must ever hold deliberate seduction as one of the most heinous of crimes, and continue to manifest my abhorrence of the seducer in proportion with my estimate of his guilt. I hold it to be a base guilt, a cruel guilt. Tis the advantage taken by knowledge of ignorance, by selfishness of generosity. Tis the infliction of deadly injury beneath the mask of feigned love. Tis cowardice and treachery in one, and in the vilest form. Shame, double shame on the betrayer rather than on the betrayed." But such a betrayer, a libertine, a seducer, you believe Lord Eric of Kronstein to be? Such I have heard him described by one, too, who thought she was doing him honour, fixing another feather in the cap of his gentlemanly qualifications, in ascribing to him such a character. A man of gallantry is, I believe, the polite term. A gallant action, truly, to win the trust and love of a poor maid, and then requite her with destruction. My poor friend! And this is the man she deems worthy of all esteem and liking, to whom she has given her whole heart!" exclaimed Ophelia. 
"'Twill be best kindness to her now to reveal her secret to you, my mother, that we may have your experience and counsel to aid her. Can we not save her from committing her fate irrevocably to such a man's care? But he is gone. Still the knowledge of his worthlessness will help to console her for his loss." Hastily she told her mother of Thyra's attachment for Kronstein, of all she knew of him herself, of her former meeting with him, of his request that she would not revert to it, and then, as the story of Jutha was unfolded, owing to the recent better knowledge she had acquired, it struck herself with a new significance, while to the Lady Udra it revealed a fearful tale of sorrow and wrong. "'I should have been with thee, my child told at the time as it occurred and as it then struck thee to a mother's ear all might have been well a child should ever have at hand her to whom every scene every event together with the ideas they may engender can be confided but even yet with much mischief may be prevented we will hasten to your friend thyra to warn her against the evil she can avoid to comfort her in the grief she will have to endure end of part six